When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. My name is Craig Hansen and today I'm joined by Ohm Arvin, a Real Madrid fan and editor of Managing Madrid, an SB Nation Real Madrid fan community and podcast. As well as being a writer and a podcaster, Ohm also provides tactical analysis for his subscribers on his Substack and Twitter. He's a fantastic guest to join us today to talk about Real Madrid and I can't wait to get all of his takes on matters on and off the pitch on today's episode of the Sportacos Football Stories podcast. Hey Ohm, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, the pleasure's all mine. First things first, Ohm, what we like to do on the show is get into how people became fans of a certain team, you know, what keeps them coming back to that team, what gives them that passion. So first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from and when you became a Madrid fan and, and how that all sort of ties together. Yeah, I I guess it's not a super dramatic story, my reasoning, but first, who I am. Name's Ohm Arvin. Obviously, I'm a writer for Managing Madrid, which is why I suppose you're having me on at the moment right Correct. now. It's a perfect time to have you on too. Yeah, it is the perfect time considering everything that's happening with Real Madrid right now. Um, so I'm I'm from the U.S. and obviously the U.S. was not a huge soccer country. I think that's changed quite a bit by, by this point in time, but it's not something I expected back when I was a kid. Um, you know, early 2000s and such, you know, going through elementary school. I, I mean, soccer wasn't even on my radar. I played you know, for a year or so when I was like five or something, I was like, nah, I don't like this. And I was like, I'm never, I'm never going to watch a sport again. But for various work reasons, I travel abroad, you know, to, to Nigeria, to India first, back to the U.S., then to Nigeria. And Nigeria is really where I kind of, you know, fell in love with football as like a spectator sport. Because when I first moved to India, I started playing again. But I, I wasn't watching anything. It was all cricket for me. That was actually the first sport I fell in love with. I go to Nigeria and, you know, it, it, it all kind of changes. Like I'd slowly been, you know, the first time I went to India, you know, I heard of this player called Ronaldo and I was like, you know, he seems kind of good. And, you know, I, I barely watched anything. When I went to Nigeria, it was like, I don't know. I was, I guess I was older, more of my friends were watching. And I was like, Hey, let me go back to this guy called Ronaldo. Where does he play? Turns out he plays for Real Madrid, and I was just like, "All right, let's let's start watching. Let's see what happens." And it just kind of went from there. And that's I think that's the extent of the story. I think it's funny for how many people like the stuff that 
drives us, you know, crazy that we put all our lives into can start from something that's just like a really simple and and kind of arbitrary moment or arbitrary reason, right? Like who knows, like maybe I hear Messi's name first and I'm an, a hardcore FC Barcelona fan right now. But, you know, I am where I am now. I write about Real Madrid all the time. It takes up way too much of my time. And, you know, it started from a pretty flippant reason. Yeah, it's so funny how that works out. I mean, I'm a Man City fan. And the, the time I started following them when I was about nine was purely based on the color of the shirt. I thought it was a nice, cool kit. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And that's kind of the future. You didn't really know what's going to come and go after that. But um, but yeah, you spend your whole life kind of, you know, raging about deadline day or arguing with people on Twitter and stuff. And, and it's crazy that it's just something that could be totally accidental how you get into it. Yeah, it's wild. And obviously it's, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with Ronaldo now. Like it's, you know, you have a certain entry point for some people. It's like FIFA. I've heard you just, you play with the team and then it just opens you to a wider world and now it's it's everything Real Madrid, right? Real Madrid's women's team, which I started following. Like it just it just never seems to end, and I feel like I spend more and more time doing it. But obviously, I love it. Um, and yeah, I mean, right before we got on this call, I was just editing some videos, uh, doing some analysis on on the women's game versus Manchester City, your team in in the in the Champions League, mm-hmm. our Champions League debut. And yeah, it's just it's just the kind of stuff I do every day and. The analysis side of it was something that came much later, and it was like a new way of opening, you know, another side of fandom for me because it, it just used to be about, you know, watching the games, you know, supporting the team no matter what. I would always say, you know, the Real Madrid player was the best player, you know, like no level of objectivity, which is, you know, fine. It's a different way of experiencing fandom. And then one day I just, you know, when I kind of started from Mag- writing for Magic Madrid, I was like, you know, I fancy myself as an analyst, even though... I, I knew nothing about it. I just kind of like pretended that I did, you know, and if you pretend long enough and you start talking to people who actually, you know, know what they're talking about and you start reading and learning, I guess you can get to a position where you start to write things that make sense. You know, I I won't I won't toot my own horn here. I'll, I'll let other people judge, but I'd like to think that like five years on or whatever, I'm, I'm writing stuff that definitely has a lot more value than, than before, but it kind of started from me just just pretending, just calling myself an analyst with, you know, without having actually done much and without actually having learned much. But I guess if you just throw yourself into it, you can kind of get into a position where you just learn a lot about the game. And it's like it's like a rabbit hole. Once you go in, there's the analytics, there's XG, there's so much more than that. And it's just like a completely different side of the game now. Yeah, I think we all have a lot of imposter syndrome in the beginning whatever we're doing and then over time like you said you learn and and before you know it you actually do know what you're doing or what you're talking about but it's so it's so funny like you mentioned that how deep you can end up going into it now you're at the point where you're like analyzing games and you're following not only the men's team but the women's team and all this stuff was born out of just you know quite liking Ronaldo as a player and and being vaguely interested and now here we are but um I know that Ronaldo was your entry point could you sort of name drop any other of those earliest Madrid players that really struck you when you first? Oh, yeah. You know, could you tell me sort of, I know it's difficult to give an exact year maybe, but do you know more or less what kind of time period when, when you really started saying, okay, I'm going to watch this every week? And and who were who were the, the players that were really, um, really doing it for you at that time? 
Yeah, so 2009 was like the first time I kind of considered myself a fan, but the every single week, you know, no matter what time it is, no matter what my parents say, you know, I'm going to like sneak in, you know, watch a shitty, you know, legal stream. That was the 11-12 season, which was a really good time for a Real Madrid fan because that's when we won the league. We broke Barcelona's hold over Spain. And Marcelo is my favorite Real Madrid player ever. And, I mean, right off the bat, I'm like, what the hell is a left back doing dribbling five players, you know, <laughs> just charging up the field? Like, that's not that's not what I was told, you know, left backs did. And I was like, this guy is just something else. I've I've seen so few players since have the technical ability that he's had. And then over time, right, okay, like, as my knowledge as a fan grows, it's not just the dribbling, it's not just the flair. It turns out he's one of the greatest ball progressors ever from that position and just more and more when I learn about the game and I understand the actual value Marcelo gave to the team, it's it's crazy, man. And I just, him and, and Dani Alves, I, you're, you're not really going to see those types of fullbacks again. Trent Alexander-Arnold is a unique one, but, but these guys are super rare. And now that Marcelo is essentially washed, I hate to say, I, I mean, you, you realize even more, you know, how much you miss these players and how hard it is to find them. And and I guess we're lucky, you know, because we're Real Madrid, we end up getting David Alaba, who's who's probably going to play more center back, but he started off in the fullback position before before going to center back the last game. That you know we'll we'll continue to find a way to always have quality on the side. But Marcelo, he was unique, he was special. And then Karim Benzema straight off the bat, and um, him, Marcelo, and then Mesut Ozil. Ozil, when he left, that crushed me like. I've still never been so angry about a transfer. And, I mean, it turned out, you know, it worked out fine. Like, it, it Real Madrid or Real Madrid, at that time, we had really no financial problems whatsoever. We didn't have to make many compromises. But he, he like, still to, to my eyes to this day, and when we talk about, like, pure number 10s, I think he's one of the greatest ever. And I think it was a shame kind of like how the narrative went with Arsenal and how his career ended there because I still think he was brilliant there. It's just that he he was no longer playing with Cristiano Ronaldo. He was no longer playing with Benzema. So Ozil, Chabi Alonso, of course, and then Casillas. Casillas was like a top five, you know, favorite player of mine at the time. And and then the whole thing between him and Mourinho kind of, it like kind of, you know, introduced me the first time to to, I guess, like, you know, maybe a more negative side of the fandom where like the rifts can be formed. You can you can kind of see your enemy, you know, quote unquote, as like the actual fan standing next to you who supports the same team. And that was a whole mess that, you know, you dramatically altered how I how I viewed Mourinho, you know, afterwards and all that. But yeah, Casillas, Alonso, Benzema, Marcelo Ozil, those those were the top five in the beginning. Yeah, well, it shows kind of how much of a development you had going from in the beginning being, you know, I guess super casual and, and just kind of liking Ronaldo to the point that now you would look back on the whole thing and say Marcelo's your favorite player ever, which I think is, it's a great choice, but it just goes to show that now you're in deep because I think probably, you know, the average kind of outsider casual fan probably wouldn't have been picking him out of that side, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people love Marcelo, but when people talk about their favorite player, it's obviously Ronaldo. And then after that, at this point, it'll be someone like Benzema. Marcelo tends to be like always like third or fourth. But I I mean, there's something about that guy. Obviously, like I value him so much as a footballer. I understand the impact he has, but it's the joy with which he plays. 
which is kind of a weird thing for me to say at this point because like I'm as I'm you know I tend to try to be as objective as I can try to be as I guess dry as I can when analyzing things not let aesthetic affect how I'm I'm trying to look at things but you know there's a romantic side to what Marcelo offered that also has like a huge nostalgia factor for me I guess that if I'm just going to step back and say who my favorite player is where you know nothing else matters and I can just you know kind of pick from my heart it has to be him because I think he plays the game in the way that we, most of us at least, kind of dreamed of playing when we were kids, which is just go forward, attack. And it turns out he was so damn good at it that he could get away with it at the highest level without defending that much. And it was a net positive for the team, which is amazing to me. I mean, how many how many like defenders can you say that about who just let them go forward? They don't track back. You know what? It might cost us sometimes, but most of the time it's going to lead us to wins. And as we saw, he was part of multiple Champions League titles and a couple of league titles as well. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a bona fide legend, of course, at the club. Um, he will be forever, I'm sure. But um, but yeah, sometimes you have to pick from the heart, right? There's those intangibles, whether it's just the style of play that particularly speaks to you, or sometimes it's that, you know, it could even be a player that for some reason or another, you just feel that passion from them or loyalty there's so many different things that it can't always just be stats or or the way they perform um but i think marcelo obviously backed himself up on all those fronts as well um but you mentioned there that now as as you've grown as a fan as we all do you look at things a bit more forensically um not only that that kind of way that we all do in the beginning especially when we're younger that's just you know all of our players are amazing all of the opposition's players are awful uh we deserve to win every game uh, they deserve to lose every time against us. You kind of grow and look at things a bit more objectively. Do you find, have you found over the years that, um, has that made the experience of watching better or worse for you? Does it sometimes make you a bit more jaded if, you know, because there is a kind of simple pleasure, I guess, in that kind of blinkered view on the game where there is no objectivity and it's just pure, you know, loyal support till the end with no criticism. Maybe if you're able to step back and look at it, you might, criticize and has that sort of dampened the experience of being a fan for you at any point yeah it's an interesting question because I guess I'd primarily just frame it as like different experiences as opposed to better or worse with different positives or negatives so like now it's just really difficult for me to you know unless it's like a really special moment like for example Real Madrid Feminino's debut in the Champions League where I did kind of just let myself go a little bit especially at the end before I had to come back and recollect myself but you know most of the time like I I get a joy from you know digging into the analysis and figuring things out essentially and it's like a, a different sort of joy than just you know just sitting back and and just I guess getting everything from the result and so there can actually be moments where where we might lose or draw and I I wouldn't say I'm happy but I wouldn't like be mad right if I feel like we actually played really well and there's like a process behind what we're doing and and you know I can have the faith that if we play the same way next game we'll win right and so there's there's that kind of element to it where the highs and lows you know are even out a little bit because I'm I'm trying to look at, at what's happening, you know, behind the results. And then the fact that, like, I get a certain satisfaction. I don't know if I say joy because it is a lot of work, right? But I think when people talk about work they do, it's less about, oh, I'm really happy all the time I'm doing it. But you feel a sense of satisfaction and pride when you when you go through it, when you figure something out, when you complete it and you look at the finished product. 
that can be quite addicting and which is why I keep coming back to it. So it's a totally different way of experiencing, um, I guess, a, a game and, and, and then following a team. Though I will say, especially if you feel like your team is, is not playing that well or is for, for a long stretch of time or in a way, in essentially a way that you don't rate, right? Because it's your analysis, right? And I, I can't say like objectively they're not playing well. It's, it, they're, they're playing in a way that you don't think they should that can be somewhat difficult, especially if like they keep scraping wins and you keep saying, like, how are we doing this? Every other fan doesn't care. They're just celebrating. They're saying we have this 10-match like un- unbeaten streak. Who cares what the XG says? Like, why are you criticizing? What's wrong with you? And that's when you're kind of going against the grain a little bit, rightly or wrongly, but because you, you feel like that's just kind of the objective side of it. And that can be a little, like, you know, what am I doing here, right? Like, my team is winning. Why am I not as, like, excited as I should be? And 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 that's that's just a weird bit. It, 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 there is a bit of, like, a conflict and inherent, you know, just disconnect, I guess, between being a fan of a team and then trying to be this objective person because it feels like, you know, you might as well just kind of step outside of fandom entirely and just be be an analyst for everything, but at the same time, you don't want to do that because you, there's something special that comes from following a team. So it's a bit weird, and I think you'll notice this disconnect. I mean, it's easy to see on social media when, like, the analyst side of the fandom meets with the more regular side, and you'll see these big arguments erupt because I think they're just coming at each other from two different places, right? The one side still having an affinity and affection for the club, but in their mind, trying to be a little bit more objective versus someone who sees anything like that that's not just supporting the team as an attack, right? And they're just coming at each other from two different places. And that's where, like, these arguments will erupt, where it's like, why do you, like, especially with the United fans right now, like, why do you hate Ole or something? Or, you know, why why aren't you celebrating everyone? That type of thing. And yeah. I, I that's why I just, more and more, I'm, like, actually thinking about this type of thing because... You know, as you you kind of noted, like grown as a fan over time, and I'm starting to see that more and more. And I just think if people understood how everyone is trying to enjoy their experience and respects that, we can avoid like half of these, you know, silly arguments and just kind of let people go their own way. I think it's tough on social media, though, because, you know, it's so conflicted and there's so many trolls, no matter what the topic is. So, I mean, it's typical that football would fall into that, too, but it's the same with pretty much anything. So it's really hard to to we we can't really stamp that out there's always going to be that kind of element but i do much prefer the kind of level-headed i guess calm uh, response <laughs> to football but uh but who's to say what what side is is right or wrong as long, as long as everyone's respectful then um you know passion is is a good thing um but i guess i wanted to ask you next um you 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 sort of came in with with ronaldo that kind of early 2010s sort of period um, we're up to where we are now, so maybe a little over a decade. How would you separate those seasons into eras, if if you could? I if there were sort of three or four that have happened since then, and which which would you say was your favorite era so far? Yeah, I guess I it, it's fairly easy to do because of the managerial spells. So there was the Mourinho era, like there was that little bit with Pellegrini, but that was the season I probably paid the least attention to. So. There was the Mourinho era, the Ancelotti era, and then let's just say the there's the Zidane era just writ large, but probably like split into just two periods. So Zidane 1.0, Zidane 2.0, 
with like chaos at the beginning of, of both of those <laughs> reigns. And then, you know, kind of where we are now, which let's just call the future for now because it's 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 barely come together. Yeah, we'll come on to that. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I'd say my my favorite period was probably the Ancelotti era because it was like this perfect mix of I feel like I have much greater knowledge of the game at this point. You know, I I think I know, you know, some stuff about tactics and stuff. When I look back, like I really didn't. But at the same time, still, you know, super like Ancelotti's the greatest coach of all time. Ronaldo's the best player of all time. Marcelo's the best left back of all time. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, so basically feeling like, okay, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm watching. But, you know, also watching, you know, La Decima and just fully just just being like in the moment, soaking up all the emotions. And I mean, it was a great time because La Decima, we didn't win anything the 14-15 season, but that first half of the season was like we played some of the most fun football I've ever watched. And then, yeah, for the Zidane era is when I kind of started the whole like analyst thing. And I enjoyed that era quite a bit as well. But there was something about that team in its prime that because and it was it was a bridge as well between okay some of the the players of old versus the kind of next generation core that would take us to the three Champions League titles right so there was a bit of turnover in the squad when Mourinho left right but there was still Chabi Alonso and it it felt like I was still watching something that was resembling the team I had seen before whereas like it was a complete like transition to you know to a new midfield right no longer no no Di Maria no Chabi Alonso, it's Kroos, it's Modric, it's a different way of playing. And there's just something about that time that captures what I like about, you know, both elements of my time as a Real Madrid fan. And so I'd have to say that's my favorite. And as you said, there's still some elements of that great team still around. And of course, the coach. So we'll come on to that in a little bit and um, and how you're going to sort of build in the coming years as those elements start to maybe fall away and, and look towards the future. Um, before we come on to um, talking about some of the, I guess, the more deeper questions about the club, I just wanted to ask you, um, you're a traveling man. You mentioned uh, India, Nigeria. Um, have you ever attended a Madrid game? And if not, is that something that you'd like to do? I know, I'm sure they come over to the States a fair bit. Um, and or maybe you'd be interested one day in, in going to the promised land, if you haven't already. No, I haven't. It's funny. I've I've been to so many places, whether you know moving there or traveling, but I've never been to Madrid. I've never been to the Bernabeu. I've never seen a live Real Madrid game, and that has to happen at some point. There's no way I can I can go through my life and not strike that off the bucket list. Not sure exactly when that will be, but hopefully soon. Magic Madrid, like we're we're, we've done live podcasts before. You know, traveling to certain locations. I'm gonna do at least one in the states. And we're looking to plan one in Madrid next year. I don't know if that's the right time for me, but that would possibly be a good moment for me to go there, you know, meet some meet some fellow fans, meet some fellow patrons, meet people I know in Spain, particularly from following the women's team, and kind of get that side of the experience because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm like a fake rounded fan or anything, but most of my, you know, interactions... And experience with other fans, particularly as years have worn on, has been online. And I don't think that's like necessarily a false way of doing it. I think 
I think it's a different way. I think it's a way that could be more expansive and it's let, I mean, it's what directly led me to like, you know, the analysis side of it. And so I, it's been massively beneficial for me, but the traditional experience of just going to the stadium, right? Like just, I guess, singing a hymn, just chanting, like being in that energy is something I haven't experienced from the footballing side of things, which is what I'd like, really like to do for a Real Madrid perspective, you know, at least once. And I've done it. I've done it with other sports. I've done it with cricket a couple of times. So like, it's not like I don't know what it's like, but that only makes me want it more. So at some point, yeah, I need to go to Madrid. I need to see a live game and 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 see what it's all about. Yeah, of course, that would be like the pinnacle, right? And I, I think obviously it's tough being so far away from the team that you've grown to love, and you don't have the chance to go there every week or even every year or something like that, like most people do. But on the other hand, it kind of gives you this great kind of. Uh, you know, amazing dream to look forward to that when you finally do go there, it will be pretty special, I guess, especially if it was like a Classico or or something like that or a Champions League game. Um, it would be really cool. But having covered why and how you became such a big Madrid fan, I wanted to get into some of the kind of, uh, you know, not so much criticisms, but the, the deeper things that maybe other fans or whatever would, would level at Madrid. So before we get into that too deeply... I just wanted to ask you about the European Super League fiasco because uh, that's kind of covered quite differently across countries, it seems, and across communities. You know, in England, it was covered very much as, you know, the the most terrible evil thing ever. And um, from speaking to friends and colleagues in Europe, uh, you know, it's not always the same uh, perspective. And being someone who's in the States, who I guess would be considered, you know, like a global fan and a big Real Madrid fan... um, what did you make of all that? What did you make of the 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 announcement, the PR, uh, the website, uh, the way it all sort of went down, and the fact that, as far as I'm aware, you guys are still in it and Perez is still pushing forward with it. What what, what do you make of that whole thing? Yeah, I, I hate the Super League, and I'm very much on one extreme of that in comparison to a lot of Madrid fans. I would say it's like, I don't know, like 50-50, 60-40 or something like that. At the end of the day, obviously, the place where this hurt Florentino Perez the least is with Madrid fans. And I think this is just where the tribalism aspect comes into play. I'm sure there are certain people that, that believe it's good, right? I mean, certainly, I think in the interest of Real Madrid itself, there's a strong case to be made that this is good for us. And, you know, okay, yeah, I guess. And I, I never doubt that, you know, for all of Florentino's ego and how he sees himself as the center of things, ultimately he wants what's best for Madrid, or, or at least in his view. And that's one thing I can never complain about him, which is why I think he's done such a good job with the finances and stuff. Uh, but ultimately, I, I the question for me is like, okay, I mean, what does it mean to care about Real Madrid in a way that seems to not care about football? And that just didn't, square for me and it's like i i want to see changes you know and fixes to the sport as a whole and this was and it, it, this is not to say for me that the old way was perfect right i mean there's still a huge amount of inequality it's not like i mean florentino was so dramatic about how like this is the end for real madrid and he was certainly right about a lot of things which is that we're not in the same financial place we used to be the pandemic hurt us which is why we had to get rid of so many players and not spend for two windows to get Mbappe but we were still able to offer up 200 million euros like (laughs) compared to most other teams like that that is not hurting and 
I just, you know, it, it, it's kind of, this is where maybe like four or five years ago, I just kind of blindly just support what's going on. But at least where I am now, it's like, if, if it's about helping Real Madrid in a way that I feel like is hurting the sport as a whole, I'm not really interested. And I, I kind of want to see a stronger league. You know, La Liga is really hurting right now. Like no, almost no transfers happen. I mean, teams are in a bad, bad place. And, you know, I, I want I want Real Madrid to be the best, but I want it to be in a slightly fairer environment. Yeah, you want it to mean something, yeah. right? You right. want it to you want it to mean something. Win a league that's hard. Yeah, win you know, win a league that's hard, but also like and, and this also maybe ties into my personal biases, but I feel like a, a lot of teams, you know, they, they just get away with spending money and they don't have to be particularly clever about it. Now that's I think changing a little bit because you have these elite managers coming into these positions now and handling this money and you and you see the results that come when when you handle that kind of money with that kind of efficiency. But I think a lot of the history of football is like, you know, we, we talk about ugly wins. Like, I'd like to see, you know, use better tactics, right? Oh, you can't buy Mbappe, right? So then be smarter, right? Be be better tactically, right? Use analytics, right? Like, figure out different edges to win. It's not the end of the world, right? And I just think this kind of comes back to, at least from a Real Madrid perspective, at least for people who defend it. And, um, I mean, this is not a surprise, but like a sense of entitlement to success, which I, I suppose what attracts people to Real Madrid in the first place is like we always should be winning. We are owed winning because we've always been winning. We were the first winners, right, with the European Cup. And if we're not, like it's a disaster and something needs to happen. Even if we need to shift everything around us, that's what we need to do to get us back to the top. And I, you know, I, I want to see Real Madrid on top, but I, I love the sport of football more is basically, you know, my point. But... It's not it's not a common opinion across Real Madrid fans, and there there were certain socios as well. Because it's interesting, Florentino said, you know, when when he was asked, did you consult the socios? Did you consult fans? He was like, no, I mean, I don't care about their opinion. And you know, talked to a couple of socios, and they're like, we don't mind because we knew this is the reality going in. This is how the presidency works. It's not it's not a real democracy, in, and I, I guess in how many people perceive it. Yes, the socios have the power to elect Florentino. Once he gets into office, he can kind of just do what he wants. You know, he, I mean, he can report back and, and check in with people, and ultimately, if you don't like his results, you can vote him out. But given, you know, the just the restrictions on what it means to be president or what allows you to be president for Real Madrid, like you have to be a Spanish citizen for a certain number of years, you have to be able to put up a certain amount of you know Real Madrid's total budget as collateral just as security in case Real Madrid go bankrupt right like that limits the candidates quite a bit and when you really get down to it it's really only Florentino a couple of except from a couple of other weirdos who like who who you, you really know nothing <laughs> about and then people will bring up like Nadal or something who has like I mean I love Nadal but I, I don't think he really has any idea how to run a football club so it, it's a weird situation in that sense, right? You can have all the criticism in the world and ultimately come back to the idea of Florentino still the best man for the job. I mean, in terms of the PR aspect, that was just funny to me because Florentino is not a good communicator 
and some of the stuff he said was i mean you just have to sit back and laugh right i mean this is good content when he goes on chiringuito and he says the reason football is failing is because you know people have short attention spans kids aren't watching anymore they're more interested in video games this is why we need the super league not the most convincing argument in the world and i think he did himself really more harm than good because he did that multiple times and I think that's just Flo's ego just coming out a little bit, right? Like he, I mean, he's so used to winning. He's so used to his plans coming off, right? He's a really smart guy. And that it went sideways for him is something I think he couldn't bear. And I think that's part of the reason we're still holding on like this. Even though it seems like we've lost the battle, he's, I mean, he's going to fight tooth and nail for this because this is his pride. This is the baby he's been working on for a very, very long time. I mean, it's ironic that he said the pandemic is when he was working on this well before so there's a bit of convenient logic going on but yeah it's I don't see this in the interest of Madrid anymore as holding on because I I don't see how we win even though he, we might have some some legal technicalities on our side the I mean the public debate was won a long time ago and and they we're going to let it happen again it might happen to the Champions League but as a Super League that idea is dead for a while and you know, but it's it's Florentino. He's going to hold on to it. Yeah, well, as you said, that the classic one of the one of the classic Chiringuito moments um, that was it, and and all of the the PR stuff, even the the kind of the graphics and everything, it just was so rushed. It just all seemed so embarrassing. But the key word that you said there was entitlement, and that's what I found um, not just with the European Super League, but this transfer window as well with with some of these big clubs. If you look at Barcelona, you know that the way that they were kind of trying to position themselves against La Liga that oh look you know like big bad La Liga are not going to let us kind of overspend you know 150 million on multiple players who just flopped and then we loaned them out to Bayern and now we're screwed and therefore it's their responsibility to bend the rules so that we can re-sign Messi it's that crazy idea that like that you know that these big clubs are entitled to winning and that there shouldn't be rules in place Um, I think it does kind of uh, you know, sit poorly with a lot of fans. And, and that's kind of the next thing I wanted to come on to with you. You mentioned the state of La Liga. I mean, I lived in Spain for five years and I lived in multiple different cities. And in every city you live in, you do find that the majority of people you meet support Real Madrid or Barcelona, no matter where they're from. Um, we, I think every country has this, obviously, and, and globally, these these teams are huge, aren't they? Of course, you know. There's millions of people over the world who support Man United, Real, Barca, Bayern, etc. And inside the countries too. Here, obviously, I'm a Man City fan. I'm not from Manchester. There's uh, there's tons of Man United fans, Liverpool fans everywhere. But in the UK, and I think in Germany, it's not quite that much of a thing. There is still very much that kind of, um, you know, communities do support their local teams. And it does kind of have that ecosystem working. I found in Spain that that wasn't the case. Um, even if you get to sort of the second tier of Spanish football, like I lived in Malaga, for example, um, and Mallorca, Real Mallorca, they were in the second tier at the time. Um, the gates are horrific, you know, like they, they can't even half fill their stadiums, which it, as a as a British fan, it's really um, hard to see because that is not the case here. You know, even as far down as the third tier, we're having teams with 35,000 people there. So I guess my question was, do you, does it bother you at all? Is there any... I know it's not the team's responsibilities, like, you know, Real and Barca, it's their responsibility to to become bigger brands, to win things, to have success. It's not their responsibility to necessarily, you know, make sure that the Sevillas and Valencias 
of the world are up there challenging. But as a purely as a fan, does it sadden you that kind of, you know, even sort of below eighth place in La Liga, we're talking about teams where they're probably not at capacity because most of the people who live in that city are supporting Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, they probably don't have a chance to really realistically do anything. Um, I mean, does, is that an issue and, and how can it be solved, I guess? Yeah, so I, I think it is an issue. And I think this is where, you, obviously, there, you have like a conflict of interest and this is where having a strong league matters, right? Because obviously, as like a rational actor, you want to do whatever you can to leverage a situation for your club. And I would certainly like in a perfect world, I'd like a greater spirit of like considering the, the nature of the game and the league as a whole, because I think improving the product that is the league can end up benefiting you, but also like, you know, just feeling a certain connection to football and like, really, I mean, football is what it is because of like the smaller teams and, you know, what they build as a bedrock, right? For, you know, for like, I mean, if, if, if there isn't that, I think the community aspect of it like is gone, right? And all we're just talking about is like trophies and winning. And, you know, certainly I think that's what attracts a lot of people to Real Madrid. But there's another element to it, which is, you know, just there's something about football in, you know, especially in local communities that just ties you to the communities. It's a, it's a sense of being, you know, part of the place where you live and, you know, something I'm slightly envious of, right? Like I've moved all over the place. That that to me is sort of a foreign concept to me because I don't really know what home is. But that's that's a really important aspect of football. It's the foundation of football. That's how football started. And it provides something else that stretches beyond just, okay, my club won or they lost. Whereas like I'm experiencing something with everyone else as a collective. Not to say that you can't, you know, feel that in spirit with other people that you've never met. But like I said, like being in a stadium with other people all the time, every week, it's different and it builds stronger bonds. And if we consider football to be a community game, I, I, you can't do away with that. And I think that's where like these super clubs are kind of losing sight of that, right? Like in this era of globalization where fans are everywhere, right? Like, you know, I hate to say it, but I mean, you could move Liverpool football club elsewhere and they'd still be Liverpool Football Club. And I'm talking about a side that has really strong ties originally to the community, as well as like a really strong political core originally to what they were, right? Like, you know, fancying themselves as like a socialist club and whatnot. And, yeah. you know, I mean, they've gotten to a point where they're Real Madrid, they're Barcelona, and really you could move it anywhere. And yeah, they'd lose that community and that would hurt them. But what it hurts for, at least in the eyes of the people who own Liverpool, is their brand more than anything else. And this is kind of where I feel like fans you know, who show so much loyalty and passion can get taken. I can, they can have that used against them. I think, you know, where when clubs make decisions that are not in the interest necessarily of football, they rely on their fans to come to their aid and be like, hey, 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 you know, this is good, right? What we're doing is fine when actually it could be, you know, it could be hurting them and it, it could be hurting the sport. So, it, you know, go, go back to kind of your original question about like the league and, you know, what should be done. I, Yeah, I mean... I would like, you know, Real Madrid Barca to be more responsible, but ultimately when you just think about how the interests work, La Liga needed to be stronger, needs to be stronger, and quite frankly they've been largely incompetent in the way they've handled the league. And, you know, the the whole thing with, you know, not filling up stadiums and and et cetera, et cetera, 
that falls down to them making Real and Barca the center of everything, right? Their marketing campaigns, everything they've done, they just relied on Ronaldo and Messi for a decade to draw eyes to the league. And now that they're gone, right, they're they're suddenly in a place like, oh, what do we do now? Oh, suddenly we have to, you know, strengthen the image of these other sides. And it's and it's not like it was this massive challenge. We're talking about clubs with massive history, right? With with the history of winning as well, sides that play really good football, you know, Real Sociedad, you know, Sevilla at the moment, like Villarreal, Valencia, Deportivo, even historic clubs, right? Have still managed to stay competitive despite having nowhere near the finances. I mean, we saw Villarreal outplay Manchester United in the Europa League final, despite Manchester United like spending six, seven, eight times yeah. as, as much money as as Villarreal. Like La Liga has managed to stay competitive. Despite you know not having the money, they have really really strong academies that you know keep things going. Like when you think about it, Spain is situated in an amazing place to have grassroots support for lower level clubs, given the strength of the academies, given the culture and unique identities of teams and the quality of football they play. La Liga has just been negligent. You know, the entire time they'd be like Real Madrid and Barca will give us everything, and all all of a sudden they're in a position now where doing that led to their power rising so much where they said, hey, you know what, La Liga, we don't need you anymore. We go to the we go to the European Super League. And now that La Liga is under threat, all of a sudden they're kind of scrambling to assert their authority, you know, which is kind of what that private equity deal was about in trying to redistribute funds and stuff. So I, I think they're a bit too late with it and we'll see how it goes. They might be in a position where they've given far too much leverage to Real and Barca. But this is why leagues exist. This is why league organizations exist separate from the teams because each team will have their own separate motivations and interests. And you need someone above all of them who supposedly has an interest in in football in the country as a whole. The problem is that La Liga, like up until this point, hadn't. They were fine. They were just all about Real Madrid and Barcelona. Ultimately, the responsibility falls with them. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's not going to be too little too late, but we'll have to see. But it, it could be. I, I totally agree with everything you said. I think, obviously, I'm a little bit biased because I'm from the UK, so I see the Premier League as, you know, the best thing ever and and all that. But I do think if you compare the two, like you said, even with the branding and stuff, obviously the Premier League does kind of, you know, it does prioritize big teams. There are big teams, but at the same time, I do think it's a lot more equitable in terms of kind of the way it not only distributes the money, I mean, teams at the very, very low end of the Premier League from the TV rights they generate, they get so much money from that. And I think it's because of that spirit of competition, even at the top end of the table. I mean, this season, realistically, four teams could win it. And then when it comes to finishing sort of in the European, especially Europa League, you could be looking at 10 teams. And I feel like, La Liga needs to pivot to more of that now. I feel like it's been too long. Like you said, just Real and Barca. Atleti have been kind of upsetting the apple cart here and there. But apart from that, they've really just made it, like you said, the Ronaldo-Messi league. And now they're both gone. Uh, they kind of... I was impressed at least that they didn't bend the rules so that they could re-sign Messi because I actually thought they probably would. Uh, what did you make of that? I think that's because <laughs> of the Super League. I mean, maybe they still wouldn't have gone that far, but I think the Super League woke them up. And, you know, La Liga's like, we have to get them under control, right? Because, and I think this was the perfect opportunity to show, you know, both Real and Barca, even though this was about Barca, who's who's actually in charge. And we'll see about who's actually in charge soon enough, but La Liga certainly felt this was, this was the time to assert it. And 
you know, obviously as a Real Madrid fan, I'm happy that I don't have to face Messi anymore. But I, I just think as a La Liga fan, you have to be happy to see that. You know, even if you're sad that, okay, we, we lost Messi. But, I mean, Barca can't... Barca is like literally one of the most financially incompetent institutions of the last 10 to 15 years made every single decision like the worst way possible yeah right awful. no no care in the world just thinking we're gonna bail ourselves out in some way la liga will bail us out and 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 people were talking about this for years i wrote an article in 2018 saying this was coming people wrote articles years before saying this was coming and then all of a sudden when it happens they're shocked and they're like oh man we can't re-sign messi like this is like injusticia like everyone's against us nah man you did this to yourselves and you and you did this because you thought you could just waste, you know, everyone's money and, and still get away with it. So I, I'm glad it happened, but I really I, I'm skeptical that it would have if it wasn't for the threat of the Super League, because I think that that told La Liga like, man, we, we let things get out of control here and we need to show everyone who's boss. Yeah, I mean, before we turn this into a Barcelona podcast, it was just, you know, rank arrogance followed by rank entitlement to spend the kind of money they spent on on players that just no thinking involved. Just, you know, who is a relatively big player from the world? Okay, Coutinho. Okay, Dembele. Okay, Griezmann. And we'll just sign them. If it doesn't work, we end up loaning them out to other teams and just this crazy wage bill. And then when it all hits them and they're going to lose their golden boy, they're so entitled they actually think that it's like the league's responsibility to fix that. But like I said, we won't go into that too much because the next thing I want to do is talk, of course, about Real Madrid. And the modern day. I want to get into stuff right now. But before that, we're going to take a very quick break. And then we'll be back to talk about all things in 2021 Real Madrid. Okay, and we're back. So, Ohm, what do you make of the current situation of the club? Where they are right now in relation to previous years? So, people talk a lot in football about crises. And, you know, oh my god... It's the end of the world if you lose two games or if you lose a certain player or if you have some financial turmoil and it's always blown out of proportion. Um, are Real Madrid in crisis? Um, and, and how do you see the, the next few years panning out? I think we're out of crisis now. Relative to other seasons, we were in a bit of a one with the pandemic. It's It's not a thing with Real Madrid that... Unless you go back to the point when Florentino originally took over in the early 2000s, where we were actually kind of doing what Barca was doing, and Florentino needed to balance the books, you know, since then and bar that little stint in between, he's done a really good job of keeping us in good shape financially. So we were never really in a position where like we need to sell players, really good ones, right? Like we lost Ashraf Hakimi, who's the best attacking right back in the world, in my opinion, and that's that's a huge loss. I, I mean, I don't think we're going to see... I, I, t- I told you how, how special I think Mar- people like Marcelo is to so just apply that to Ashraf, right? And so we had to make those kinds of losses, right? There were rumors that Ashraf didn't want to compete. That's all nonsense. He came out, squashed that. We just sold him without without consideration to him because we needed to do it for the money. And to do that for a couple of years without spending anything, that's not a position that Real Madrid had been in. And that was induced by the pandemic. And we've kind of, because of that, we now have money on the books. Obviously, we failed in the Mbappe transfers. So I know we got $200 million sitting there. A little bit of that has gone to Kamavinga, but not a whole lot. So we have money going to the next transfer window. We have a new stadium that's being renovated, which also hurt us a little bit financially in the short term. But this is going to be massive for us going forward. Expected to bring in, you know, 
tens millions, if not like a hundred million in revenue, right, per year, which is massive. And I mean, this is what I'm talking about with Flow's financial plan. You you can take whatever issue with with him you want, and I I take a lot of issue with him sometimes, as I talked about the Super League. But financially, he knows what he's doing, and so that's why Real Madrid, I think, are out of crisis now. And um, you know, what, I mean, we don't know when this pandemic is going to end, but moving forward, even regardless of how consistent ticket sales are, we will have money going forward. The difference is, even if you can say we're healthy. We are no longer the dominant financial force, right? City, PSG, these state-funded teams are in a completely different position. And that's a huge frustration for Real Madrid fans, a huge frustration for Florentino Perez, because we're used to being on top, and we don't like this at all. That was also another motivation of the Super League, right? This was the original motivation, actually. Florentino saw this coming, and he said, nah, like, they're, he, I mean, he could see they're going to be on top. We need to come back to that level. And obviously, without it, we're just going to be a ring below. And we'll be in a position where no matter how much money we offer PSG, they can say, no, nah, we're, we're not going to give you Kylian Mbappe, right? One year left on the contract, $200 million on the table. I don't care, right? We'll risk him going on a free because money doesn't really matter to us. And so, yeah, I mean, we're not in a crisis. We're going to be in a really strong position going forward. I see many trophies on the horizon. That's that's the beauty of being a rich club, you know, in, in a world where most teams are poor. But this idea of Real Madrid being the top dog, always getting their target, being able to bully Manchester United into selling Cristiano Ronaldo, right? And them eventually having to give give in, you know? And Ronaldo didn't go on a free or anything. We spent 80 million pounds to get him. That, at least with PSG, probably City, it, it's harder. And obviously, English clubs, a lot more money now, not just City, United, you know, might might even consider themselves on a greater plane to Real Madrid financially. It's it's just a little bit more of an equitable world at the top, while everything else has become more unequal. So that, I think that's the frustration for Real Madrid fans. But if you kind of if we can step outside that bubble a little bit, it's good, right? We got Kamavinga. You know, we have a hundred something million at least. You know, probably more when you take in the revenues from next season or after this season to pursue players. And even if you don't get Mbappe, even if you don't get Haaland, let's say, it's not like it's the end of the world. You can build a really good team without those players. I think we've seen Liverpool, City, Bayern. They didn't have Mbappe, didn't have Haaland, and yet they've been the best teams in the world the last couple of seasons. PSG had Neymar and Mbappe, two of the, three of the best players in the world, and they didn't. They still haven't won a Champions League title, right? So Real Madrid is fine. It's Barcelona that for a couple of years is going to have to suffer balance the books it's why they got rid of Griezmann the way they did though I don't know why they brought in De Jong and yeah I, I'm, I'm not that worried I think we've seen the worst of it now it's just about can we can we make the right decisions on the pitch can we hire the right people can we make the right transfer targets can we be smart and you know even if we're not the most optimal in all the decisions it's still Real Madrid we'll we'll still find a way because we may not be the richest anymore but we have the money to get to get good players yeah, definitely. You have enough money, and but like you said, with the I guess the growth of the Premier League and all the money involved, you know, anyone from kind of United City, Chelsea, Liverpool, they're in a different position now in terms of having to give up players. But I think usually it's because Madrid still has that allure, doesn't it? You saw it with Mbappe that um, players still want to go there. They really want to go there, um, even if it's not so much of a financial thing. I mean, Mbappe seemingly was desperate to leave a team in which he would play with Neymar and Messi and Donnarumma and Ramos and, you know, in this kind of Harlem Globetrotters team that they have, which looks destined to win the Champions League on paper. Although, 
tactically speaking, as I'm sure you're well aware, of course, um, you know, there are many, many holes in that and it might not turn out quite as people think, uh, especially defensively. But, but you know, it's it's such a, you know, what a team of global megastars, what a cool thing to be in, right? But he, but no, he still, he wants to be at Madrid because of, I don't know, the legacy, the aura. He was desperate to go there. And I think you'll still find that with all players from any big team in the world. They still grew up, I guess, watching these icons of the past, um, like Zidane. And I guess in the future, it'll be the kids who grew up watching Ronaldo, or maybe even it is now. Um, and they'll they'll want to go there. So you'll still be getting players. You'll still be doing well. Um, but on this occasion, you didn't get Mbappe just yet. But how do you see that situation playing out? I mean, I'm hearing different theories that, uh, you know, maybe they're going to keep him. And then after sort of six months of playing with Messi and Neymar, maybe he'll love it so much that he'll change his mind and sign a new deal. Or do you see him? I think in January he can sign a pre-contract agreement, right? Mm-hmm. To go to Madrid. Yeah. Um, I guess, which of, the, which of the two do you see happening? So there's a lot of fear, a lot of fear from the Madrid side that, Something is going to change after years and years of wanting to come to Real Madrid. Magically, you know, Messi is going to like kiss him on the cheek or something. And he's going to be like, wow, like <laughs> I, I, I can't. I, this dream I had, you know, screw that. Right. <laughs> and I guess anything is possible. You, football careers are short. People change their mind. And I'm not going to have the arrogance to say with with just absolute certainty nothing nothing can alter Mbappe's perception. I'm sure PSG will do everything they can to try to get him to sign another contract. They'll offer him the moon if they have to because this was I mean this was not a rational logical decision what they did, you know, with Real Madrid. And I'm not just saying that as a Real Madrid fan. They're doing this because No, of course. They have a pr- financially it's right. crazy. They have it? a pride issue, they have an image issue. Them being able to screw over Real Madrid like just was them being able to assert their power, right? And so they, I mean, them keeping Mbappe would be a massive win, right? To deny him for Real Madrid forever, what a legacy that would be for PSG. The, against a club that has the biggest allure, that gets everyone that they want, to not, to not give them Mbappe, I think that that's a huge motivation for them. And then obviously Mbappe helps them win on the football pitch in the Champions League is their greatest sporting objective. But ultimately now the power is in Mbappe's hands. They can do whatever they want. Mbappe is the decision maker. And... I just I just don't see a real reason to have an insane amount of fear. I just think people I just have such anxiety about it. They want Mbappe so badly, partly because Florentino has he's cultivated that madness about this guy himself. Every single summer and all season, it doesn't matter what happens, Mbappe, Mbappe, that's the only thing people want to talk about. And so when you have years and years for that, I understand how the anxiety and the failure of getting him now just drives people mad. But if you try to just step outside of that a little bit, I, I, there's there's not a concrete reason for why he would. Like it's people just kind of making up stuff. And maybe maybe it will. But from what we actually know and from the amount that Mbappe has said over the years and the fact that he's only ever mentioned Real Madrid – I think there's a pretty high possibility that he signs on a free for Real Madrid, which to me would be the superior option than paying 200 million for someone the last year of their contract. And at a certain point, like you have to consider the risk of like how much is the risk of him staying on worth. And to me, it was already not worth more than 160 million. He went to 180, then went to 200. It's certainly not worth more than 200. So at a certain point, you have to put a monetary value on it. Like 
how much is is too much? And people keep saying, oh, there's the risk. Then name a price for me, right? Is it 300 million? Is it 400? When we get to 200, it's like, fine, I'm done, right? Like, if Mbappe stays, I'm willing to accept that risk because with 200 million, I can still build a Champions League winning side. So I think he's most probably going to sign. If he doesn't, I would be surprised, but it's not an impossibility. That's just how I view things. I think most Madrid fans probably disagree because there's a, such a deep anxiety over not getting them. And then as a Real Madrid fan, I don't think we really know what success is like without like a, a superstar, without a top three player. That's the only way we really understand success. When you go through history and, and the titles we've won, it's Raul, it's Cristiano Ronaldo, it's Di Stefano, it's Puskas, it's Hugo Sanchez. We've always had those players, you know, but with the way tactics are now, with the way modern systems are built, if you build a complete team with multiple world-class players, you could be better than the team that has a Neymar and Mbappe as we've seen with PSG. Yeah. Which is not to say I don't want Mbappe. I want Mbappe. I don't want people to twist my words. If you can get Mbappe, it makes everything easier, but it's not the only route to success. And at some point, you know, money is like, is is an obstacle for me. I'm not going to do whatever it takes to get a guy who could be free in January. Yeah, exactly. That's more like a Barcelona thing to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's probably yeah, like you mentioned earlier too. I think nowadays it comes a lot down to coaches too. We're going to come on to Ancelotti now, but you mentioned sort of you know Liverpool and City and stuff, and and of course Liverpool spent big on some players. Man City have spent you know obscene amount of money, but they haven't technically bought those Galacticos. You know the the kind of Mbappes or. Haaland's or, or Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar, none of these players have come to the Premier League. So they've won stuff, you know, spending money, but also a lot of coaching, I think, and a lot of, you know, trying to approach it a little bit smarter. And I think that'd be a great thing for Madrid to do um, with or without Mbappe. But we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, I agree with you, though. I think he probably will go there on a free next year. And then there'll be a kind of uh, a new era for the next kind of decade um, and not bad as well to get to one for free and then have them for probably a decade. But before that, um, what about this season in particular under Ancelotti? Um, how excited were you about that appointment? Um, how much was that excitement kind of uh, tinged with nostalgia? How much was it? How much of it was objective? And uh, and what do you expect this season from Ancelotti and from Madrid? Do you see them genuinely challenging for the league, Champions League? Um, what kind of players could we expect to see popping up now that Mbappe is not going to be there? Who's going to take the lead on the pitch? You know, a lot of questions, but but how do you see the season going? Yeah, so I don't think it was actually tinged with much nostalgia at this point. I have to be pretty good about setting that aside and just kind of saying what I think. And in, in terms of like just analyzing it and, and trying to provide the pros and cons outside of my emotions, Angelai is my favorite coach of all time but I don't think he's the best coach of all time. And I think what we saw with the past couple of seasons with him was, and, and we see this with all managers, it's inevitable, but I felt like the game was slightly passing him by, more so on the like defensive side of things. right? I just felt like Ancelotti's grasp of pressing just really was quite a step below someone like Jurgen Klopp's, for example, who's probably the greatest pressing coach of all time, but also take Pep Guardiola, who also has an incredible understanding of it. Like, really, these... It's just a different age of pressing than where it was. It's not press. It's not like pressing didn't happen before. I mean, Ancelotti literally played in one of the sides that 
revolutionized what pressing meant under Harigo Saki. And he was kind of like the center of that midfield. He saw it. He understood what it was. But it just shows you how much football has grown that from that place, I kind of feel like Ancelotti is a bit behind in that aspect because it's just so much more complex. It's so much more intense. There's so many more phases to it. And I think you especially saw it with Everton. With Napoli, I think as well, is where I really started to see where Ancelotti really for the first time is like, let's go high pressing all the time. And it just, it didn't work as much for me. I saw a lot of holes and I was like, ooh, that, that worries me a little bit. And I didn't see that much improvement with Everton. And then offensively at, at big clubs, I think Ancelotti's style just generally works because even though there's not a lot of like structure to it, he's not a positional play coach, which is becoming more and more in fashion. When you have talent and you're able to put out lineups where the talent meshes with each other well naturally, which is what Ancelotti's specialty is, it's generally fine. You might not reach the highest of heights, but generally don't need to as long as you're good enough and you're optimizing it to a certain degree, which is what Ancelotti is fine with. So the more and more talent you give him, the better and better I feel about Ancelotti because that's that's what he's there for, right? But in terms of him raising the floor of a slightly weaker team with more holes in it, I had some skepticism, especially on the defensive side of things. And that's where Real Madrid is in kind of a weird place because we have a lot of talent still relative to other sides, but we're nowhere as near as dominant as we used to be. Like, there are clear holes in the squad, right? Which is why we won Kylian Mbappe. We're so over-reliant on Karim Benzema on offense. And there's a real fear that it's just going to be the same story this season where, where you know, midfielders will step up, Kroos will play amazing, but ultimately on offense, everything will be on Benzema's shoulders. The great hope is Vinicius, who I've been a big fan of for a long time, but who's been a frustrating player, which is what youth development is like. Real Madrid fans, it's not like youth players have never developed at Real Madrid, but generally they've either done it fast or there's been someone ahead of them. So Real Madrid fans, especially in offense, like they've not had to go through this multi-year of experience of just seeing someone who doesn't produce on the pitch while having such obvious talent. And it's, he's frustrated people to no end. And I've I've advocated patience with him a lot. I have a lot riding on his success because if he doesn't pan out, people are going to come for me hard. But <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think you just, you look at it based on potential. You look at it on the risks and whether they pan out or not, I think you make the correct decision if you bet correctly on that kind of talent, right? Even if Vinicius never makes it, I will stand by betting on him because I think, I think the ceiling is so high. Obviously, especially if you can't sign someone else, right? You bet on what he can provide you because... And this may sound dramatic, but if all if the only thing he does is adds that end product, he immediately becomes one of the best ta- attackers in the world, which is why I, I advocate patience with him because it's just about adding one or two things. It's not like we're talking about he needs to become a completely different player. He just needs to start making the right pass, the right decision. He needs to compose himself in front of goal because the underlying stuff is there. Incredible dribbler, incredible line breaker. He gets into good scoring positions. He creates good chances. You see that in the statistics. XG figures are really good for a winger. He gets shots off. If all we're talking about is adding one thing, then for me, it's like a no-brainer, right? Have the patience because... It just suddenly he looks like a completely different guy with a completely different impact. And we see it in the beginning of the season where he's come in already with three goals. Even in the last game he started where he didn't score, he was our best offensive player. Now, I have no idea whether this holds, but this gives Real Madrid fans hope that, okay, even without Mbappe, there's room for growth here. Because everywhere else it kind of seems like it's the same. But if Vinicius explodes, that's the path to a greater offense. And that would make us favorites for the league title. At the moment, I think 
Barca, given what they've gone through, are not the favorites. Real Madrid, Atleti, probably about even. I think we have a pretty good chance of winning the league title. I initially predicted that we come second. Would not at all be surprised if we came first. It's it's not like you know the other competitors in the league are so far ahead of us. It's the Champions League where we're clearly second tier, third tier competitors. And you know I think we can make a good run like we did last season, but we're probably not going to win. We have a question here from a, a fan on Twitter, but before we get to that, just to touch on the Vinicius thing again, real quick. Um, I guess the only thing with that is, do you see? Do you think Ancelotti's the right man to help him progress? Because you know he's renowned for his man management, and as you said, he you know he plays he plays the right players in the right places. Players love to play for him. They will probably gel together, and then the system will will work, even though it might have tactical flaws. But I don't know. Do you see him as a guy at this stage, at least, who develops players? Um, or would you rather there have been, for, for players like him and younger players in the squad, would you rather have had a different coach who maybe could have brought them along a bit quicker? So I think from what I've seen so far, Ancelotti is, is the right person for Vinicius because I don't think like a lot of his game need that much work, right? It's not like we're necessarily teaching Vinicius like positioning and stuff like that. Not that they can improve, but defensively, he already has a pretty good impact. Pressing-wise, it's, it's been a bit wonky, but I think that's just that's just gonna how it's going to be for the entire team. Um, and we've seen what Vinicius' defensive work is like under more structured system. Not that Zidane was the perfect tactical coach, but he really found something defensively the last couple of seasons when he was kind of forced to as our offense faded. And we saw improvements on that front that we hadn't seen in a while. But, like, yeah, I mean, with Vinicius, it's not like we're trying to develop his overall impact it's, it's just about how do we calm this kid down how do we get him to find his composure stop freaking out in the final third and then we just trust that the rest of his game comes through right we're not we're not building from the ground up we just need to just finish the 10 percent of his game just polish the diamond a little bit right and it seemed and it seems that Ancelotti at least so far has said the right things right he he's been and the interesting interesting thing with him versus Zidane is Zidane never said anything in press conferences. He hated it. It's honestly part of the reason he left. It, it's not the reason, but in his parting statement, or at least one of them, he complained about the press. It's funny. I mean, he just hates that aspect. Ancelotti's a diplomat. You get a sense that he kind of enjoys talking to, to the press, at least when things are going well. And he's been really open about how he sees everything so far. And he said, I told Vinicius... You're an excellent one-versus-one player, but when you need to shoot and score one touch, two touches, you don't take more than that, right? So it's giving Vinicius clear instructions, simplifying things for him in very just simple ways, right? And then letting Vinicius's talent do the trick, right? So I think we've already seen it with some of the goals he scored. Even when he's not shooting from the greatest angles, he took one touch, two touch, that's it. Vinicius is like, okay, I have to shoot now. And somehow it goes in because that's the kind of talent he has. So I, I think that's kind of what he needs. Just give him a very clear, broad objective that just simplifies the process for him when he gets into these types of areas and then let him figure it out. After he takes one touch, two touch, you don't need to tell him how to find his way through goal. He's that talented that he will. But what we needed to do was get him to take only a couple of touches instead of five, four, six, you know, and, and so on. So so far, it looks like he Ancelotti is the right kind of calming influence, you know, with that type of experience for Vinicius. It remains to be seen, but I, I think it's worked well so far. If we're talking about players 
you know, who need to develop the entirety of the game, who really need a lot more tactical understanding. That's where I think maybe Ancelotti at this point in time is not necessarily the best, where you need someone who's more of a philosophy coach. But Real Madrid is never really going to be that type of club. You need to come in with a certain level of talent, a certain level of understanding, or you're just not going to survive here. We'll polish off your game, sure, but you can't come in clueless, not understanding things. We're not going to build for you. Like the fans don't have the patience for that. I mean, I might, but the fans don't. Yeah. Generally, we don't sign coaches who do that. No, we're always in win now mode, even when we're in a rebuilding phase like right now. And even if it's a young player, he needs to be ready to win now. Yeah. But yeah, so with Vinicius, without Mbappe, uh, we're thinking clearly in the title race. I would agree with that. Um, I would say Atleti are slight favourites and then Real are right there. And, and I wouldn't even discount Barca too much, to be honest. It's not like they're terrible. Uh, you know, with Depay and with Aguero, if Aguero can be fit, uh, you know, they, 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 they still have a decent team, let's be fair. Um, but as you said, in the Champions League, maybe a little bit lower. I mean, PSG are probably everyone's favourites, but... Um, I don't think it'll be as simple as it looks for them. I mean, I think Man City pulled them apart last year and kind of exposed them. And I think, if anything, they're just going to become even more top-heavy, even less tactically aware, even less solid. And I see them potentially even going out like sooner than the semifinals this time around. But um, I guess on paper, you know, you're going to be struggling against the likes of them and City and Bayern and Liverpool and so on. But should still be a good season, despite the rebuild. Uh, we do have one question from a from a user on Twitter, the username Tales of the Blanco. You've got mail. And they ask, do you think we'll have around 400 million for transfers next year when fans come back? What's the situation with fans right now in Spain? Because in the UK now, I think we're at full capacity. Um, is What's the COVID rules over there? Are the stadiums uh, full? Are you making revenue from that? It's like, I don't know, half capacity or something. It's not full yet. Um, with I think the the plan was to do that, and then like the Delta variant hit, and it's we couldn't do that. So for example, for like the first time, or one of the first times with Real Madrid Femenino's game versus Manchester City, where they played in the Di Stefano Stadium, which is where the men's team has been playing with the Bernabeu under renovations, like we allowed like the actual public to go and see the women's team. The way they handle it is really odd because generally they don't allow people to come and watch. I'm like, why? Why would you? Why would you do that? Right? Like it seems like an easy way to grow the women's team. That's an entirely different discussion. But they opened it up. It sold out instantly. But there still weren't that many people because everyone was spaced like five seats apart and stuff. So that's kind of the situation right now. I don't know when that's going to end because every time it seems like we're dealing with COVID, we, we get careless and we're like, oh, it's all over. And then we act shocked when for the seventh time it comes back <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, we have to be careful again. Um, so I don't know what that's like. So I don't know if I can say we get 400 million, but we do know we have 100 million in some in the books and we will have more. We will have a good amount to just go out and, and sign whoever we need to sign. And it'll be about how do we allocate it? Do we do it smartly? Do we blow all of it on someone like Holland? And yeah, that that problem of like having to be super, super careful is is kind of gone, at least for now. And we should be able to sign a lot of players if they want to come next window. And I don't know how much money it'll be, but it'll be a lot. And there, hopefully, we'll see like rejuvenations in needed areas, and we'll be looking at a very different squad. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, with I mean, for a Madrid fan's sake, with all the money 
you know, you'll probably have a few hundred million to throw at it. And hopefully, like you said, you won't just spend it all on Harlem because there are like several um, aging legends in the team, right? That could do with being replaced. So you might be better off spending sort of 80 million on 80 million each on like three or four really great players than just signing Harlem. But especially if you get Mbappe for free, then uh, no need. So, uh, but we'll, we'll wait and see on that. Though Real Madrid fans want both Haaland and Mbappe. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, yeah, you could maybe you could do both. But I mean, I guess Haaland will be somewhat cut priced next year, won't he? Is he one year left next year, is it? or Everyone's going for Haaland next year, yeah. So he, he might be cut priced, but I suppose the fact that everyone will be in with... Bidding in, war. In, yeah, yeah. That's what's going to yeah. But like, yeah, but I hope at the same time that you'll invest in sort of, you know, the area where Cruz and Modric are currently occupying and and uh, and just some areas of the pitch where you could probably do with more reinforcements. But uh, we will have to wait and see. But before we get out of here, we'd, we'd like to finish off with a little quiz here called Do You Know Your Heroes? Don't worry, this is uh, notoriously hard for most guests. <laughs> Um, but I think for you, it should be quite easy. But even even if not, um, don't sweat it. But I'm just going to ask you a few questions. They're all about sort of records, you know. So oh, it's, it's kind of simple <laughs> Wikipedia bait. But um, if you haven't looked in a few weeks, maybe I'll catch you out. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Like I said, most people get then nobody gets all of them right. Let's 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 say that for sure. Uh, who is Real Madrid's all time leading appearance holder? All-time leading appearance holder. Whew, it's Raul, I'd say. Correct. Do you know how many? Like, I don't know, 746 or something. Very good. 741 between <laughs> 1994 and 2010. That is some knowledge straight off the dome right there. Got love for that. Um, player to win the most major trophies with Madrid. Is that Paco Hento? Correct. Do you know how many? I know how many Champions League. I don't know in total. He had six Champions Leagues, but in total, oof, like that, yeah, that's too many. That's that's one of the, I guess, the the good problems to have as a Real Madrid fan. You never have a full count <laughs> of how many trophies we have. Well, he won 23 major honours between the years 1953 and 1971. And that is, uh, you know, that's old school. Um, yeah, not so not bad. Not bad. Not too bad. Um, all-time top goal scorer in all competitions. Hmm, this guy called Ronaldo. Yeah, have you heard of him? Uh, I don't suppose I don't you know. know how many. Uh, God, I, it was 450. Very close, 451 apparently, yep, if 450. my research is correct. Please don't at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one, I didn't know actually. This one, Not that I knew any of these, but this one genuinely surprised me a lot. Which player has the most assists for Real Madrid? In history. Ah, uh, this I'm not going to get. Especially if you say it's... I mean, I hope I'm correct. I had to, I had to kind of triple check this because it just didn't feel right to me, but it's... I couldn't find anything to dispute it. So do please email me if this one's wrong. <laughs> Give the email. I mean, Ronaldo's up there just because of how productive he's been. Mm, I don't know. Like, I'm just going to go with Ronaldo. Apparently, it's Karim Benzema. Benzema? I should know that. If it's Benzema, then I should definitely know that. Yeah, I mean, apparently he's got 146 assists in Real Madrid history. 
But I wouldn't say that surprised me because he's played a facilitator role for a long time. Yeah, I know he played and he played off him a lot. But yeah, still, it just, I mean, people don't give Benzema enough props. But yeah, I tried to disprove that because it just felt to me like, I don't know, it would be someone who's more generically, you know, a winger or something. Or but here's the, here's the thing, the though. Whole... When it comes to assist stats counted in old times, they're very unreliable. That's something I've gone back when I've tried to watch games and look at statistics. It, assists are all over the place. The goals are the ones that are more reliable. It's about the only thing they recorded properly. With Assists are all over the place. So I'm not saying it's not Benzema, and he'd probably be top five even if you counted it all up correctly. But like the amount of assists that like Di Stefano provided is kind of like lost to history, or at least recorded improperly. Yeah, sometimes you get it on the other side, don't you, with the goals, with, you know, the kind of people that Ronaldo's always competing with for the all-time goals where, you know, there's back in the day when it's so disputed. Pele and has a thousand ha- goals, apparently. <laughs> yeah, Pele, there's, there was, um, I know that he's he's searching for Ali Dai's record now, isn't he? But there was that other guy who he overtook. It was um, like an Eastern European guy, I think, wasn't it? Like a Czech guy or... Polish guy or something. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but the name the name slips my mind. Yeah, the name escapes me, and they had this whole thing, and and then that they would the FA was saying, no, no, we found another twenty. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind, you know, it's crazy, but okay. But anyway, um, apparently, according to my uh, flimsy research, Benzema, um, is the record assist holder, highest ever transfer fee paid. It would still have to be Bill, right? Well, I according to what I saw, it was Eden Hazard. Oh yeah, Hazard, of course. According yeah, to Transfermarkt. <laughs> well, so yeah, it is. I do like Transfermarkt. I, think... I find it quite reliable. But yeah, these Bale is like ninety-six million euros or something yeah. like that, and and Hazard's a hundred. So a yeah, hundred. But then there's you know variables. It's it's always debatable. Um, and yeah. this this one as well. Every time I do this one, it's always it seems to be very debatable. But let's see. Youngest player to ever play a first-team game for Madrid. Is that Raul? <laughs> According to my research again, it's Martin Odegaard. Oh, 16 years old. Yeah, he came on briefly at first yeah. sub for Ancelotti, yeah. At 16 years and 157 days against Getafe in La Liga in May 2015. Now, of course, playing for Arsenal. Uh, had had a nice uh, second welcome at the weekend when they uh, when they got destroyed again. Um, who was the first Real Madrid player to win the Ballon d'Or? Di Stefano. Correct. In 1957, it was Di Stefano. And finally, the first Real Madrid player to win the FIFA World Player of the Year. Ooh. Can I know at least when the when it started? Yeah, this one's a lot more contemporary. So um, I don't know exactly when the award started, but I'm guessing it couldn't have been much more before this. But this gentleman won it in 2001. So are you talking about Zidane then? Though he oh, he didn't come to Real Madrid then, so Figo. Luis Figo, correct. I don't know exactly when that FIFA award started, but you got to think it couldn't have been too much before that because he was the first one to do it. And then the next year, Ronaldo. In fact, three years on the bounce, actually, it was Madrid players. Figo, 2001. Ronaldo, 2002. Well, I, and then Zidane, 2003. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it may be... Ah, here we go. It started in 1991. So the, for the first decade, okay. Madrid didn't win any of them. And then they won three in a row um, during that period. Cannavaro won it a little bit later on. And then since then, no Madrid mm-hmm. player has won it. Well, Ronaldo. Um, Ballon d'Ors, yes. Uh, the, the Ballon d'Or, but the, this FIFA world player thing, I guess... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. It says while playing for Real Madrid, those are the four. Strange, but I think you did uh, pretty well. 
especially getting Gento, which I have to be honest, as a non-Madrid fan, is not a name I'm particularly familiar with. Yeah, he's he's not. But when I went back and watched old games and read the history, like there was a phase where I really I just wanted to know what the original side was like, what started it all, and. Hento Hento comes up as a big name once you go there. So there's like the big three. It was the Stefano, it was Pushkas, and then Hento was the guy. Hento was like the pace merchant, the trickster, the original like high assister. Like I, I was surprised like he, I mean, I don't know where he was in the assist record when you saw, but he'd be pretty high up because that was kind of the primary part of his game. He's actually one of my favorite players when I go back in history because he was just, he was so fun to watch. Insanely fast. And he kind of played with the sense of like abandoned, and desire to put on a show that would really probably be frowned upon nowadays given how professional and cynical things are now like he would he would do rabonas and stuff and lose the ball and the crowd would applaud and that just probably when Vinicius does that their whistle is coming in so (laughs) I yeah I mean he's a really fun player but he was also incredibly effective and he he was at Real Madrid for a very very long time he's a he's a really influential player in, in Real Madrid's initial history. Well, Om, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. We went a little bit longer than we planned, but I really, really appreciate your time. It's been so, so interesting for me. Um, do you have any socials or any uh, any things that you want to shout out and plug? Yeah, Twitter, at Sports is my Twitter. I have a Substack newsletter called Tactical Rant. Go check it out. I've recently done some pieces on Mbappe and Kamavinga kind of explain, well, the Mbappe thing, if that hurts, don't go and read that. But I, I wrote something about Kamavinga explaining who he is as a player and a lot of misconceptions I think people have about him. I tried to clear that up. Um, I think people liked it, so go check that out. And then hopefully at some point in the day, I'm going to get some some videos out about Real Madrid Feminino's draw with Manchester City and, and how that went down, what were the key things there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always doing stuff on, on social media. I'm, I'm online way too much. Check it out, guys. Check out Managing Madrid 2 on SB Nation and on Twitter. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening and see you later. See ya. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Sportscast Football Stories podcast. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. It really genuinely helps a small podcast like ours to grow. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend who may also like it. We appreciate this more than you could imagine. Head to sportacost.com for news, data, statistics, live streams, you name it, everything you need from the world of football. You can also follow us on Twitter at sportacost.com and you can follow myself at Craig Sportacost. We would love to read out the thoughts and questions of our listeners, so please feel free to tweet those to me anytime or send us an email to show at sportacost.com with your opinions or your questions, and we will get to them on the next episode. Thanks again to Ohm for coming on to speak to us today. Thanks so much to you for listening, and see you on the next episode of the Sportacost Football Stories podcast.
Social Podcast Network.